0: right, Scramble for Africa, episode 14. We have done the Algeria precedent. We've talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about the Algeria precedent, uh, which I think is a huge factor. Um, And now I guess we're going to talk about France. We're just going to go to France and spend a little time in France before maybe going to Tunisia. Is that right, Dave?
1: Yeah, I thought it was worth doing because uh, qualitatively there's a difference between French imperialism and British imperialism, and second, uh, just like the British in Egypt, the French in Tunisia is one of these episodes that actually causes the scramble. Right? This yeah. is and it's just early before the yeah. Berlin yeah. Conference.
0: Exactly. So I guess for listeners, remember we're going back a little bit because you know we did we did the sack of Benin a couple episodes ago, and that was eighteen ninety seven. Right. So we've basically gone. Uh, you know, towards the end of the scramble with the British. But now we're going to have to cut back. We're going to be cutting back and forth a little bit uh, now. So, Dave, over to you.
1: Well, there's a key figure in in this period, and that's Jules Ferry, F-E-R-R-Y, Jules Ferry, who was a moderate Republican. That means that he was not part of the Revolutionary Commune, that he was uh, an opponent of Napoleon III, but not one of the more active ones. It, you, you can't take these French politics and remove them from what's been going on. By 1880, we're only 10 years removed from the Franco-Prussian War. And, and, the, and
0: the Paris Commune,
1: yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So Joseph Ferry served as Minister of Education, then he was Minister of Foreign Affairs, and he was Prime Minister twice in the 1880s. And during this period, the French began to get more aggressive. This is uh, the period of their incursions in what is today Vietnam, Annam and Tonkin in the 1870s, the occupation of Madagascar, uh, their activities in Congo, in, in the Niger region, and of course the the Tunisian episode. So these are all linked to Jules Ferry.
0: And we also talked a little bit about a war the war they had with China over Vietnam, right? Yes. Which didn't exactly <clears throat> they didn't do all that well in. Okay? <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no. No. What's interesting here though is that you have significant opposition to Jules Ferry's imperial plans. Now, some of them seem to have been personal, as in you have members of, you know, the French assembly that dislike him so intensely or they oppose his his, uh, administrative style. But there's also a group of French Republicans, the more radical ones, who know who this guy is and they can't stand him for his politics. There's a split that the French have not healed since 1870. If, if you haven't heard that episode about the Paris Commune, thousands died. The Germans were besieging Paris, but the French were killing each other in, in basically a civil war. So...
0: Yeah, so there's of, some kind of like treason accusations going back and forth too, right?
1: Sure. Sure. And, and the French civil war, it wasn't just political differences. It's a class war as well. And that makes it really, really nasty. So I was trying to compare it to civil wars that we've covered before. I know the American civil war is, you know, back in the spotlight today, because it seems like America's fracturing along the same dividing lines. But what I found interesting was that after the American Civil War, you know, North and South seemed to get along reasonably well. It was like they were going to forget the Civil War and put it behind them, and the North would turn a blind eye to, you know, the South uh, blocking civil rights. for.
0: Yeah, they basically put the same people back in charge in the South, so that was the... The yeah. South. They told the South, "You can't do this to the whole country, but you can continue to do it in the South." Was basically
1: right. the deal. And then the British Civil War goes back to the sixteen hundreds, and although they had a Restoration ten years later, it seems like some of the uh, losers in the re- the Restoration, well, they left. The more extreme religious groups, they're the ones who went to America. So that problem seemed to. Uh, settle down, if you wish. And after the Glorious Revolution, there's really no uh, party that stands for absolute monarchy, and and the divisions seem to fade. It's like they all get on the same page. That's not the case in France. There's bitterness and resentment, and they're still fighting the civil war uh, politically, and they won't stop doing it for generations. I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to it later on, but France in the 1920s and 30s, the, the divisions are still there, and you actually have French uh, leaders who would prefer Hitler.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there, there are there. I'm going to present this because there is um, <coughs> there are some French historians who basically have the thesis that you know France sort of lost uh, to Hitler because they a lot of them handed wanted to hand France over in the first place
1: yeah so these divisions go back to the original French Revolution to the 1790s and a hundred years later they've just been reinforced by you know the revolution of 1830 1848 the the Civil war in 1870 71 so it's a,
0: a so it's kind a of an very... unstable like political setup that they have.
1: Right. So, Jules Ferry, as a moderate Republican, is now pro-Empire, and that's going to mean that the socialists and the radicals are going to be anti-Empire. If I wasn't before, the fact that Jules Ferry is for means that I'm against, automatically.
0: Yeah, that is so different from the British, right? And the Americans, because they can agree on that. I mean, when they can't agree on anything, they always agree on foreign policy. Um...
1: You might argue that the British radicals are abolitionists and uh, humanitarianists. So there's your argument. Well, we're going in to erase or abolish the slave trade. Oh, in that case, okay.
0: Yeah, <laughs> just give them something. You yeah. can always give them those people something. But in France, it seems it's so bitter that they won't. Uh, they yeah. won't.
1: Yeah. And French imperialism is different, again, because French capitalism is different so it seems that french investors were not shy about putting their money outside of france we covered the suez canal started by french investors and the panama canal again you know some of the same people but also french money being invested outside of france the the argument is quite clear it's not necessary to own these places to invest in them we don't have to control the place to, you know, invest our money. I mean, the British attitude is considerably different. We, we like to own it before we invest in it. But and I French... guess
0: in a way it's like France is riding on that, right? Because they're investing in places, in many cases, that the British control one way or the other. So uh, there's like a British imperial umbrella over all of these investments. That
1: applies to the Suez, but Panama...
0: Panama's no. the Americans, yeah.
1: Panama, No, Panama was still under Colombian control.
0: Oh right, Colombian
1: control. So, <laughs> if if you're a French imperialist, you're using economic arguments. But according to uh, Henri Brunschwig, the real reasons that the imperialists want to take over colonies is number one prestige, and number two something they call rehabilitation. So the French reputation, or or perhaps their image of of themselves, their amour propre took a real blow in, in the defeat uh, at the hands of, you know, Bismarck and Germany. So we need to rehabilitate our image. The closest thing I can think of is uh, the United States after losing in Vietnam. You know, they had to go and throw the, their muscle the around. Vietnam
0: against... syndrome. So you're saying that France had like a Paris Commune syndrome kind of thing? A
1: well, Prussian and, a, and a Franco-Prussian War syndrome. Yeah. So we have to show the world that, you know, we've still got it. And then later on, they're going to use uh, arguments justifying the acquisition of colonies on the grounds of national security.
0: Well, I mean, this is one of the things you need colonies to protect your colonies, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But Brunchwig basically says that the French learned a lesson during the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. The British went around grabbing all of their colonies, right? And and they realized at home that they didn't need colonies. Yes, it was a a financial loss for ship owners and merchants and obviously slave owners, but for the rest of the people back home in France, it was no big deal. You know, we were able to dominate Europe for decades without those colonies.
0: So Brunschwig is an interesting guy. He wrote a book about uh, the the. The scramble for Africa, it looks like Le Partage de l'Afrique Noire. Yeah. And historian of Germany, then pioneer of African studies in France at the Ecole Nationale. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Also, we covered in earlier episodes some um, less than successful, okay, let's put it plainly, disastrous colonial adventures. Napoleon III uh, funding Maximilian's expedition to Mexico which ended in complete disaster total loss
0: where, where does when was the Monroe doctrine stated was it after this or before this or around this uh, the Monroe
1: doctrine came out really early 1820s or
0: so this or, is a, they they were gonna they were already on thin ice on those grounds right to do to support the Mexican adventure
1: yeah, but when the Monroe Doctrine came out, you, you have to understand most of Europe either ignored it or the ones that heard it laughed.
0: Right. Well, not laughing now.
1: No, no, no. Things have changed a little bit. So uh, basically, Brunswick is saying that uh, support for colonial expansion wasn't that <laughs> high, given that you know we screwed up in Mexico. Plus, Algeria has not been going well, as we covered in the last episode. Uh, Ferry actually went to Algeria, Jules Ferry went to Algeria in the 1890s. He thought, well, we can, you know, educate the indigenous people, we can, uh, you know, bring in more settlers and, you know, this kind of thing. And then he found out, okay, wait a sec, the settlers don't want to pay taxes. The indigenous people are too poorly educated to grant them self-government. I mean, that's his patriarchal that's view his of thing, the situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Muslims don't want French citizenship. That's accurate. They also don't want to do military service. And they don't want to go to the schools that you've set up for them that you know don't include religious education. And you have two very different sets of civil uh, law for, for each group. So Algeria is a mess, and that's not a secret back home in France. So you could make the argument that even in the 1880s, the french were not imperialists there's no real public opinion lobby for it and there's no uh, you know huge economic self-interest argument
0: so they're trying but, to make these arguments to pitch it to to that's the thing you know, so there's yeah, basically Look, it could be like our far west it can be like our uh, outlet you know, for our energies national prestige markets yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, they're making the argument, this is what we need. So the French people have to be educated to be imperialists. And that process started much earlier. Uh, The French Geographic Society was formed in 1821. Now, they only had 300 members as late as 1860. But then the numbers start to increase. 780 by 1873, 2000 by 1881, and between 1871 and 1881 you had 11 new geographic societies formed total membership 9,500 so there's growing interest in the rest of the world because that's what the geographic society is right they're not mapping france <laughs> they're they're yeah. mapping the rest of the world and uh, identifying places that would be really nice to uh own uh there's a speech by the secretary general of the the Paris Geographic Society in 1873. It is dangerous for a people to be indifferent to conditions of other peoples and to be ignorant of resources offered by lands far from their own commercial and colonial activities. So in other words, we have to learn about other people in the world and what they have so that we can take it from them. Uh, The Commercial Geographic Society created in Bordeaux in 1874, The founder was a man named Foncet, and he said uh, imperialism or colonialism is a means of rehabilitating France. So there's that argument again. This is how we recover from defeat in 1871. Uh, 1881, from the Society of Valenciennes, to remain a great nation or to become one, a people must colonize.
0: Oh, God. Oh, mon Dieu.
1: Right. Francis Garnier, who uh, accompanied and later led an uh, an expedition exploring the Mekong Delta, he wrote a book in which he invoked the civilizing mission. He appealed to economic motives, but his ardent enthusiasm arose from his faith in destiny, his consuming personal ambition, from the urgency he felt to raise France's prestige and from keen awareness of the rivalry with England.
0: Mm-hmm. This is very interesting, because I, I i don't know about what... What do you think? Because I don't think by this point France is a rival of England's. Well, um, they want to be. <laughs> yeah, they want to be. <laughs> and, I don't really and, think England has a rival uh, at this point. Not when it comes to colonialism.
1: Actually, they have several. Uh, the English are in their... Period of splendid isolation, so they're just mm. you know nose in the air, ignoring others. But uh, every once in a while, you watch where the English fleet is placed, and and they're worried. I see, yeah. because the French have a big enough fleet that you know a surprise attack could catch the British on the wrong foot if they're involved right. you know in Asia or the Pacific or so. Right. The, uneasy rests the head. Or yeah. Was, right, uneasy. Right. <laughs> I can't Heavy is the, the head,
0: or, yeah, something like
1: that. I think it's something about uneasiness when the crown is on your head. If you want to stay number one, yep. Now, Jules Ferry himself used economic arguments all the time, but in an 1884 speech to the Chamber of Deputies, he said, "It is a right for the superior races because they have the duty to civilize the inferior races." Well, and
0: there it is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> It seems like France has picked up these arguments late. Yeah. And they're using them because they heard the English use.
0: Them. They're wor- yeah, they're working for them, yeah.
1: This is how this is how you convince your people to become imperialists. There are literally dozens of these statements and they're always the same. They mention rehabilitation. So, you know, this image of a defeated or conquered France that has to, you know, restore their prize, the, uh, the civilizing mission the development of trade, colonial expansion, and, and these themes start to be picked up in daily newspapers and some of them become slogans. And you know, how do you argue with slogans? So the curious thing though, is that the people preaching the development of trade are not bankers or businessmen or merchants. In France, they're the intellectuals, engineers, politicians, the, the financial interests were not in favor of grabbing Anam and Tonkin, and and they weren't keen about Algeria, and, and they didn't like the acquisition of Tunis. They had to be convinced to like it. So Paul leroy Boulieu uh, in a prize-winning dissertation to the Academy of Moral and Political Sciences, boy, that's a good one, eh? Uh, in 1870. This was published in 1874. He said settlement colonies, as the British you know, do, are out of date. Emigration should be directed towards regions where capital would be invested for the greater profit of their inhabitants as well as the financial backers. The costs of establishment would be minimal. The administrative expenses non-existent.
0: So lean, mean, colonial machine.
1: Or make the colonies pay for themselves the way the British seem to be able to do, and you know, we could do this too.
0: But this is—is is would you say this is somewhat like Lord Lugard, like indirect rule kind of argument?
1: Well, <laughs> we'll we'll come to that because
0: because Algeria is a settler colony and it's incorporated into France, right? It's considered a province of France.
1: Yeah. Legally. Yes.
0: So yeah, they're not a, doing
1: it, indirect rule there because of the way they handled it from the start. Yeah. And and Lugard's a little later, but, but I do have a contemporary to, to compare and contrast with him. Okay. Now there is some, as I mentioned, opposition to colonialism. And it's fair to say that a lot of this is just because they dislike Jules Ferry or, or his domestic politics. You know, he's a moderate reformer it's too much for the conservatives and not enough for the radicals so he's unpopular at both ends of the spectrum
0: there's you, also the can sorry. can you say much about his specific reforms like what did he do did it was it voting was it social welfare stuff or
1: <sighs> extension of the vote mm-hmm. uh uh Rights to form unions and you know workers' rights, because uh, French workers had to carry identity cards; mm-hmm. nobody else did.
0: <laughs> right. right, so that that he removed that, or
1: I he was toying with it. Okay. I don't know that he ever did much of that. Okay. He's much more famous as an imperialist. I would have to go and dig deeper to find out. Okay. The, there's also the the argument though that no matter what you do, <laughs> you yeah, could have. Yeah. You're not going to be able to please both ends. Yeah. The conservatives and, and the uh, radical Republicans and the socialists. It's not going to happen. There's uh, another argument about French imperialism is, in that it uh, resembles, you know, the, the British statement that, you know, their empire was acquired in a fit of. Yes. Uh, yes. inattention. Yeah, exactly. Like we weren't, we weren't paying attention and then all of a sudden this empire landed in our lap. Uh
0: Oh, so the big reform that he did was uh, primary education is free, oh, non- it away from non- the church. non-clerical, and mandatory. Yeah, Right. Right. The number of professors called the Hussard Noir de la République because of their Republican support doubled under his ministry.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you can see conservatives would hate that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a uh, an echo of the uh, the Robinson-Gallagher theory, the the man on the spot. That French expansion in the 1870s, particularly in in Vietnam, was uh, begun by colonial officials without the knowledge of Paris or with only grudging approval. So the feeling that well we'll grab something and then present the yeah, government they with they gonna, a fait accompli, right? They, well, yeah, we're already what are they going to do? So naval and military men motivated by uh, amour de patrie or a sense of adventure or even just a chance to practice their craft on relatively backward kingdoms and tribes. So there's some pretty uh, ambitious projects here. Nothing, well, actually, you know, I think of (laughs) Rhodes and the Cape to Cairo Mm -hmm. dream. Mm -hmm. In 1874, there's a French engineer named Roudère who wanted to conquer uh, Chad, connect it to Algeria and Tunisia, and create an inland sea.
0: Because it's a desert anyway, so they just somehow...
1: Pump in enough water to create it an inland...
0: water from the Atlantic Ocean?
1: Yeah, I guess. Huh. And then there's a fellow in 1876 named Dupontchel who was advocating a trans-Sahara railway.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Pakenham has some funny stuff there where it's like... They keep asking uh, whatever the the government for money, and the the government sends these incredibly tiny amounts. <laughs> and they're like, we can't build a trans sahara railway on, you know, a million francs or whatever. Yeah.
1: So the the, the next item I found was the uh, the connection between French imperialism and the Foreign Legion. It, ah it, the
0: French Foreign Legion, much talked yeah. about but little known. What is this well, French Foreign Legion?
1: Much of what is known tends to come from movies and novels and not from you know actual historians. But All right, so here's here's a problem. If you use French soldiers who are conscripted, they have mandatory military service. If you take French conscripts and send them to the colonies, that creates big problems. The first problem, obviously, is they don't want to go. So you have a public outcry, why are you sending our boys to Indochina or you know to the desert or among these barbaric people? The second issue is they're not trained for foreign conditions before they're shipped out. So they do not adapt well. Uh, We're going to see this in Madagascar in 1895. They definitely saw it in China during the Boxer Rebellion. You end up with high mortality rates, which only makes problem number one worse because you know what happened to the last expedition and how many of those poor buggers never came back. Also, the use of French troops attracts more scrutiny. It, it's like it attracts attention, and the French public begin to focus on these colonial operations, and you end up with a rather unwelcome degree of oversight. Uh, Marshal Liotet, who was a, a huge figure, in uh, especially in Morocco, but also in, in the French Empire generally, he argued that France needed a separate colonial army.
0: Well, again, the British is a great model because they use Indian troops to do most of what they do, right? I
1: mean, Yeah, or, or African troops from one area to yeah. do their punitive expeditions in another. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, the French haven't had that experience yet, but they're, they're getting it, and they're learning that, okay, sending troops from France is bad. Meanwhile, there's an other issue in France. Now, they had a tradition of foreign regiments. There were uh, several ref- uh, regiments of Irish refugees fighting against England, uh, Napoleon had satellite troops from all over Europe, and there are quite a few Polish troops in in France. These are fleeing, you know, the uh, the Russian occupation of Poland. Uh, the Swiss Guards who defended the king. So there's a history of foreigners serving for France. But in the 1830 Revolution, when Charles X was overthrown, uh, the new king Louis Philippe ordered the Swiss regiments disbanded because they had basically stayed loyal to to the king and and during this period of revolutions there are many many foreigners pouring into france uh failed uprisings in poland uh, across germany and if you're a wanted man france is a you know ready to grant asylum to all of these people only when the numbers start to increase the french begin to regret having them all there what are we going to do with all these foreigners they're uh, first of all they're politically revolutionary they could join up with our revolutionaries and start trouble and even on a small scale you know they're they're restless they're dangerous they're unemployed so how do we gently get them out of france you know without you know trying to kick them all out and somebody got the bright idea Give them a job, put them in a military unit, and then ship them to Algeria. Solve two problems with one simple solution, right?
0: (laughs) But is that really why they came to France?
1: No, but they are unemployed. And Mm -hmm. also, many of them are revolutionary fighters, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe they won't be too picky about the cause that they're fighting in. Like we haven't really thought about the propaganda angle, how do we, but you know, give them give them a job, give them a, a uniform and get them out of the country and we'll, then we'll deal with the other issues afterwards. So as you can imagine, the beginnings were, uh, I love this word, don't get to use it often enough, ignominious. You had a whole bunch of these these refugees in France that are rounded up, put in military units And there are no officers or or, uh, non-commissioned officers, the backbone of of an army, the sergeants and the corporals, right? You don't have any from the regular French army that are willing to serve with these foreigners. So the troops were undisciplined for the first. The second, they're just rife with democratic and egalitarian ideas. The French are, are trying to do this on the cheap, so their pay is extremely low. And that means most of these guys get to Algeria and the first thing they do is sell their equipment so that they can buy drinks. The, uh, the early results are not encouraging. They do not do very well in Algeria. So then they were rounded up and shipped to another location. They were sent to, they, they were sent to Spain which is having their civil war for the, oh, I don't know, the 11th. I, honestly, I cannot keep track of all the civil wars.
0: I didn't know there was a Spanish civil war in 1835.
1: Oh, Justin, from the moment the Napoleonic Wars ended.
0: It's continuous almost.
1: Spain has civil wars, revolutions, attempted revolutions, and it just goes on and on and on until and- the, the late 1800s.
0: And, and Spain this one, taking Morocco is during the scramble, right? Are we going to talk about that in this? The uh, yes, we will. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yes, we will. So the eighteen the 1835 Civil War in Spain, the constitutional monarch, Isabel II, is asking for help against the uh, contenders who were supporting a guy named Charles. So they're known as the Carlists. And France sort of wants to help her but doesn't kind of so oh here you go here's the foreign legion you can have them so she's got these foreign troops to use against the the carlist rebels and uh, she uses the way them the way you you think she would she basically uh, uses them as cannon fodder they're frequently sent out on unsupported attacks and uh, they're used as the spearhead in attacks. You know, the more of them that die, the better. And France is okay with that, because the more that die, the fewer we have to pay afterwards.
0: How, how many people are we talking about here? What size is, is this unit? Uh,
1: it's not as big as you would think. It's, it's somewhere around 3,000 men for, yeah. for much of the time. Okay. So as you can imagine, the numbers are declining between combat deaths, disease, desertion. And of course, when their enlistment runs out, Good luck getting them to sign on again. So, so that experience eh, didn't didn't go that great. And you know what's funny is when they lost the Civil War, the Carlist rebels, many of them, did not want to face rep, you know retribution from uh, Isabel. Uh, so a couple of thousand of them joined the Foreign Legion to fight for France. <laughs> Meanwhile. Uh, in the 1830s and 40s, refugees are still pouring into France, so they organize a new Foreign Legion, having spent the lives of the first one in Spain, and they ship them back to Algiers. And this is when they discover uh, this. This is, of course, the period of Abdelkader, right? We covered it in the last episode. So they discover the French discover something about the Legion. They're very brave in battle. The Legion actually distinguished themselves in the storm of the city of Constantine and, and made a name for the future Marshal Saint Arnaud. Now, yes, they went crazy when the city was sacked, they went crazy looting, but so did regular French troops. The thing is, the, the Foreign Legion showed themselves to be very brave in battle, but when they're in barracks, when they're just, you know, in, in occupation of a quiet or reasonably quiet zone, their discipline just goes to hell. They're selling their equipment. Uh, they're they're uh, going AWOL. They're, the discipline for the Foreign Legion was absolutely savage. And of course, that leads to desertion. And then you have more savage punishment.
0: So you have to they're, keep them fighting. Yeah. You to keep them Otherwise,
1: they're going to sit in barracks and, and plot to murder their officers. Or, or desert en masse, you know, if we can find an enemy to go to that won't kill us, you know, we'll all go together. Uh, they also learned, the French, about the Foreign Legion, that these problems were more prevalent when they were grouped by nationalities. And that's the way they started. Like, let's put all of the Spanish guys together. Let's put the Italians together, the Poles, the Germans. You know, it, it makes it easier to find an officer who can speak their language sort of thing. But that's a problem because these guys all start plotting together. It was actually better to spread them out, split them up and have them learn a few simple words of French to follow the the commands. And I also found something interesting about desertion. Uh, Wellington, the, the English general, described deserters as taking French leave Whereas the French expression for desertion is filet à l'anglaise.
0: <laughs> That's good.
1: Yeah, I thought so. So the Legion ends up seeing a lot of action. Keep these guys busy. So they end up being sent where the where the heat is. And that starts to appeal to ambitious young French officers. Rather than, you know, occupying a, a desk and waiting for promotion as your seniors retire or die off, you can go where the action is and make a name for yourself, especially middle-class officers. If you don't have you know, the noble or political connections, this is a way to get ahead. And that contrasts with the British Army where commissions are still purchased. And there's the rule that officers must be gentlemen. They must be well-born. So you've got these middle-class young French officers who are gonna make names for themselves leading the legion in combat. I mentioned St. Arnaud, uh, Bazaine, and Marshal McMahon, the future uh, president, president, prime minister of France. So the legion goes to the Crimea. Uh, They go to Italy in 1859. They're sent to Mexico with Maximilian where, I mean, amid all the disaster with Maximilian's expedition, the legion actually distinguished themselves. They fought, they fought to the death, right. uh, surrounded by thousands, like 60 legionnaires or something, surrounded by 2,000 Mexicans. And they fought to the last bullet and then launched a bayonet charge, the last 12 guys or whatever was left. So the legend of the legion begins to grow. They're in uh, Indochina, they're in West Africa. We're going to see them in action in, in uh, the rest of our coverage of the French in the scramble.
0: So, they're they're like the answer to the Indians that the British have. They're like the the troops that that replace trying to use native troops for imperialist. I mean, no, trying, to use, use, uh, trying to use trying to use they'll
1: like, use native troops, but, yeah. but rather than sending a couple of regiments of the regular French army, yeah, they're going to send the Legion and then they're going to send uh, Marines. The French have Marines as well. And those are the two units that end up getting used the most often. So they get the most experience. They can handle the unusual conditions better, which is why you call on them next time. And then you get that cycle going. So this finally brings us to the case of uh, Tunisia. Ah, the
0: case of Tunisia.
1: The case of Tunisia. Some similarities to Algeria. It was uh, another former province of the Ottoman Empire but pretty far away obviously from metropolitan Turkey and the Ottoman Empire is still in rapid decline. Uh, They lost the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78 and that uh, caused the Berlin Congress, not the conference, not the one about the scramble, this is the one to divide up the spoils and also what do we do about this Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe that seems to be falling apart. Um, this is the period when, you know, they're all taking pieces, but deciding, well, we'll keep it together. And it leads to discussion about what about the North African provinces? The Turks obviously can't defend them. So the Berlin Congress tries to answer the the Eastern question. What do we do with Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire? So Britain doesn't want it dismantled. They want it kept as a check to keep the Russians out of the Mediterranean. But uh, they'll take their peace. They took Cyprus. And in return for Cyprus, to get French support, they offer them Tunisia. Now, Bismarck, this is only seven years after Germany has been united, Bismarck decides, I'm just going to be the honest broker here. I'm just going to adjudicate between claims and try to keep it all peaceful and friendly. But Germany doesn't want any piece of the Ottoman Empire. And he decides that this idea of France getting Tunisia would keep them busy for a while. You know, it'll distract them for their ideas of revenge after the Franco-Prussian War. Is there a
0: territorial... Thing like, does Germany have? Is that that Alsace Lorraine situation, or is that later? Yes, that is now.
1: Yep, Germany has Alsace and Lorraine, and the French want it back. Right. So Bismarck is saying, "Hey, go play with Tunisia." <laughs>
0: right.
1: <laughs> Besides, it's in the southern Mediterranean. What does Germany care about that? Uh, you know, nothing.
0: So Alsace and Lorraine are these territories where there are both French and German people on the on the border between them, and the the dispute over these territories has to do with World War One, World War Two, this 1870 war. Yep. It's just, it, it's,
1: yeah. But the problem that keeps on giving. It's a problem that keeps on giving.
0: And that, this is why uh, we sometimes call the dogs Alsatians and sometimes we call them German shepherds. Is that right? That's right.
1: Like French uh, fries Lumber-
0: and freedom fries? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, uh, Lorraine is mostly French. Uh, Alsatians actually speak German, but they've been in France since Louis Fourteenth. They identify themselves as French, even though they speak German. Right. But now they're going to start calling their language Alsatian, and yeah, because they, they did not like being occupied by the Germans. I'll have some stories about that for you later. Okay. So uh, these discussions between Britain and Germany, and France, that France is going to get Tunisia, were kept secret. This is a really interesting thing. There's some backroom deals going on here. We're talking about the Ottoman Empire, and you got three countries saying, yeah, okay, France can have Tunisia, Britain gets Cyprus, and yeah, this is all good. And they kept it secret so that the Italians wouldn't find out. Because if you, if you look at a map, uh, Tunisia is pretty, pretty close to, you know, Sicily and, and Italy had their eye on on Tunisia, so when they find out later the deal that's been made, they're going to be pretty upset. Garibaldi
0: so, would not have stood for this.
1: Was Garibaldi an imperialist, though?
0: I think he was. He was too old. He was, he died in
1: 1882,
0: so yeah, we didn't. Uh... We didn't know. We didn't get to find out whether I'm, he would have been an. I'm kind of mistake. glad he
1: wasn't around for the scramble. He might have. He might
0: have taken the wrong side, and then I would have had to not like him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might have had
1: to take down the statue of him in your backyard. <laughs> so
0: you've yeah. seen that? I thought I, I just put that up. I didn't... Yeah. You Is it I, a...
1: tried to hide it behind the shed, but
0: Google Maps. I guess it's in Google Maps by now.
1: Yeah. So Tunisia was originally ruled by an Ottoman pasha, but, you know, like in Algeria, they gradually lost power to local military commanders, and and that guy was the day, D-E-Y. But it was the civil administrator, the Bey, B-E-Y, who ended up in control of finances, so he holds the purse strings. So the Bey of Tunisia had his own army, his own navy, struck his own coins, had the power to declare war, to make peace. And he could maintain separate diplomatic relations and he could sign treaties on his own. So officially, he's a Turkish governor. And of course, when he's doing his prayers, he invokes the sultan. And when he first takes office, he has to apply for a a firman, which is official recognition by the sultan. Once he's in, though, you know, I don't know whether he even communicates with Constantinople. He's basically, a, in, you know, is it too much to say independent? Certainly autonomous.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was happening in so many other territories in the Ottoman Empire, yeah.
1: right? Yeah, same story.
0: Yeah. So from 1859
1: to 1882, Tunisia was ruled by uh, Muhammad III as Sadiq. He's the bey, uh, backed by his powerful prime minister, Mustafa Hasnadar who supposedly has been pulling the strings ever since 1837. So one of these prime ministers that manages to stay on with different regimes. And so he's the minister of finance and foreign affairs. Uh, in 1864, Tunisia was granted a constitution, clear division of ministerial powers and responsibilities. But in actual fact, the Bay was happy to reign and his Prime Minister, Kasnadar was the ruler. He, he's described as the absolute sovereign.
0: Shall I tell you what Pakenham has to say about... Uh, oh, please. ...Mohammed S. Sadok? Um, the old man was soft as camembert. <laughs> oh uh, far more interested in a pretty face at court than the intrigues of the European powers. Rustan, who is, I guess, the you know, Pakenham says he's the energetic, swarthy French consul at Tunis. <laughs> 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 Rustan had spent time and money on the current favorite, uh, one of these favorites. Um, unfortunately, at the end of 1880, Mustafa, the favorite is named Mustafa, who was a favorite of Mohammed al-Sadok. But unfortunately, Mustafa had turned against Rustan over the question of a huge coastal estate called the Enfida, which Mustafa coveted, which was snatched up under his nose by a French bank. <laughs> so they're fighting over some estate,
1: yeah. and the Italians find their way in. And That's, I guess, yeah. that's true. But yeah. it sounds like Pakenham is casting for a movie.
0: I know. It's <laughs> <It's, yeah. laughs> it's we a need breathless. the idle,
1: sensuous ruler... Yeah, there it is. We need the swarthy French consul.
0: Oh, don't forget the salons. Um, The Italians regarded the country as a natural outlet. Um, The rivalry had split European society in Tunis and its Levantine hangers-on into two furious cliques, each centered on a salon. Machio hurled his thunderbolts from the salon of Signora Traverso. Sister-in-law of the beautiful, be- of course. There's a beautiful <laughs> woman there, Madame Moussali, and Machio's own mistress. There's always a mistress, of course. Gustave hurled them back from the Moussalis in this operatic <laughs> war of the two consuls and their mistresses. It was easy to forget the stakes were so high. Who was to take over the economy and, due course, the government to- of Tunisia, France, or Italy?
1: Okay, I've got. I've actually got the the shady business deal coming up because it's it's pretty funny
0: does it have oh. the straw man a Maltese Jew called yes. Levy who yes. possessed English nationality and claimed yes. a preemptive <laughs> right to buy in FIDA? how about a fast-moving young English lawyer named Alexander Broadley who'd left India in a hurry to avoid landing in jail
1: yeah it's got all those things
0: okay good all right I'll I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to it, it <laughs> bring,
1: I didn't have the names but you could certainly name the, the participants <clears throat> uh, I was going to say though that uh, Mustafa was somewhat of a reformer. I don't know if he's influenced by uh, Muhammad Ali in Egypt or, or whether this is just he's he's joining the trend but he tried. Uh, he He's trying to reform the country only Tunisia's e- economy didn't generate enough revenue to sustain the reforms that he was hoping for, and the central administration was not very well developed. Uh, Tax collection still devolved on tax farmers, and you know how that works, right? You give a guy a contract to collect the taxes, bring me in a million. So, of course, he goes out and squeezes one and a half million out of the people and keeps the extra half million for himself. So the people are being squeezed, and the the money's not all reaching the central government. And, And they don't even fully control the whole country. There are many uh, tribes in the hills and in the deserts who are living in quasi-independence and they're not going to accept interference from the central government. Uh, So it seems like customs duties were one of the main sources of revenue for the government and they're limited to 3%. So the government, of course, is going to encourage imports because we get duties off them, but the imports are going to be manufactured products from, you know, European factories, primarily textiles. So British and French goods are flooding in and they're destroying the local uh, industries. The local artisans are suffering. They can't compete. So in 1861, the prime minister made an effort to increase revenue by doubling taxes, which yeah, you can guess that didn't work out very well. There were widespread insurrections in the rural areas and the hardships fell on on the general population. So since I can't squeeze money out of my own country, where can I get money? Well, let's borrow more from foreign bankers. And in 1867, Tunisia was basically written off as a bad investment. The... Uh, International bankers refused to lend them more money. They couldn't. They couldn't pay the uh, the interest on the national debt as it was. So they are headed towards bankruptcy. And this is a scene that we've seen before. <coughs> Sorry, no, no, in France, Egypt, is in Egypt. Yeah. right, right. And it seems to have been at least at least partly self inflicted. In the 1870s, Casen are still hanging on to power and he's still trying reforms and he's still trying to uh, correct abuses in the government bureaucracy and supposedly he was getting some pretty good results at first but then some bad harvests ruined it. And palace intrigue is also blamed uh, for his downfall. And and this is where we start to get towards your you know competing salons and all the rest of that stuff. So I beg pardon. Tunisia had just over a million inhabitants, uh, half of them farmers in the Northeast and the other half nomadic shepherds in the interior. The city of Tunis had uh, 100,000 inhabitants, but as I mentioned, crop failures, 1867 and 68, the famine that followed, and then epidemics of cholera and typhus combined to kill about 20% of the population. So they suffered some of the wow, same. that's major. Well, yeah. th- this was going on in Algeria too at the same time, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> there's really no big mood in Paris to to take over Tunisia. So even while the French government is making a deal to take Tunisia, uh, you know, granted to them by the British and the Germans <clears throat> there's no real uh, groundswell of public opinion in favor of taking over Tunisia so they're going to need an excuse they're going to need some kind of pretext to do it so in 1880 uh there's a railway linking Tunis with the coast it's owned by a British company and they put it up for sale and it's Italy that wants to buy it. Italy's interested in getting their foot in the door in Tunis, so they're going to buy this railway. And that leaves France worried. If we do try to take over Tunis, would that lead to Italian intervention? So now... Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the answer probably, is possibly. yes. <laughs> yeah. And then we get to your lovely little kerfuffle, which is i mean i just describe it as a complicated incident but you've actually got the names okay so we have a, a property of 100,000 hectares owned by a former tunisian prime minister
0: yes it's called the what was it called the n damn it coastal estate called the nfida
1: okay so there's a french consortium that want to buy the property and they've gone so far, you know, in negotiations to believe that the deal has been completed. And that's where your guy from Malta, the British citizen.
0: Yes, the Maltese, uh, what's his name? Let me see, Levy, a Levy. straw man, Levy, or Levy, who possessed right. English nationality and claimed a preemptive right as a neighboring landowner. So he owns the, na- the land next door.
1: Right, so he he moves in, he occupies the property oh, without <laughs> paying for it. So Settle, now a
0: little settler, a little settler magic going on.
1: Right now, since this involves a British citizen, yes, yes, now Britain's involved. So London sends a judge to investigate.
0: Is this broadley Is this Alexander Broadley the? I, it could be English young English lawyer who would left India in a go. hurry to avoid landing in jail.
1: Oh, okay. So they sent a disreputable <laughs> now he doubled.
0: Guy. Now he doubled as a lawyer for Mustafa and a political advisor to the Bay, as well as acting as special correspondent of the Times and the Daily Telegraph.
1: <laughs> so he's quadruple billing? <laughs> yeah, quadruple wow. billing.
0: Wow. <laughs> oh, the things they can get away with wow. in the colonies, name. Hey?
1: Well, if it's not him, somebody discovered that the British purchaser supposed purchaser Levy was acting on behalf of the bay and a group of Italian businessmen. And second, the the uh, claim on the property in question uh, was fraudulent. So <laughs> they had to cancel uh, the sale. They had to basically disown Levy and his backers and French buyers got the the property.
0: So do you know that while this was going on, there was also a naval incident? Uh, so um, which they, one? they tried a foolish compromise, the cabinet, the French cabinet, uh, yes. bullying the Tunisian court, which had to settle the Infida affair by sending a French battleship, the Freedland, to demonstrate in Tunisian waters. This was too much even for Gladstone's cabinet. It brought a British battleship, the Thunderer, steaming down on the leader of the French. Both ships then sheepishly withdrew. But the Enfida affair, still unresolved, left a sour taste in everyone's mouth and made the British appear to support the Italians. Roustan felt humiliated and threatened to resign. (laughs) Even the Tunisians now despised the French. They had fallen to the bottom of the ditch. The only hope that uh, he saw, I don't know who he is, Courcel maybe, was that the humiliation itself would soon force the French to adopt a virile resolution.
1: <laughs> this is hilarious. Yeah, so the British are in the process of taking over Egypt, but they dislike the, the, the way the French are conducting themselves. Oh, that's cute. As I said, extremely complicated, quite silly. Uh, French diplomats are now scrambling. To, to convince uh, very unenthusiastic members of the chamber of deputies and government bureaucrats, you know, we, 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 can do this. We can do this. We, you know, we got, we got this. We have to, Oh, we have to act. We have to act in a virile manner or, you know, we'll look weak. But of course with all of this strange kerfuffle that nobody understands, it's kind of ruined our our cause here. We need a new pretext and they got one. There's a tribe in northwest Tunisia, the Krumir, who occasionally, you know, launched raids into the surrounding countryside. And the border with Algeria is not, you know, it, it's, there's no line painted between the two countries. Where the border is, is often a matter of dispute. And it's certainly not defended by a long string of, you know, customs stations. So the Krumir launched a raid in 1881 into French Algeria, and they attacked the uh, neighboring Ouled Nebed tribe who appealed to the French. And in March of 1881, there was a clash between the French and, and the raiders. So the French invoked the droit de poursuite, the right- hot, of, hot pursuit. The right of pursuit. Yeah, you came into our territory, so we are now allowed to follow into your territory with an army of about 36,000 men. So yes. obviously they were ready to do something. And this pretext was a godsend.
0: So I'll read you the Pakenham on this. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so there's this uh, meeting between uh, Courcelle and Gambetta where Courcelle basically promises that they could uh, with the financial takeover, they could make millions out of Tunisian government Stop. stocks. So Gambetta is cool with it. Um, They make this plan, and then the Krumirs do this raid. Four days, uh, ten days after the meeting uh, between Courcel and Gambetta, Ferry reported a serious frontier incident with the Krumirs. Three days later, the Chamber of Deputies voted five million francs for punitive raids. Conscripts were packed off in thousands from Toulon, bound for Algeria, on 25th of April, less than five weeks after that meeting, two French columns under generals Bréard and Forgemol crossed the hills of the Algerian frontier with tricolors flying. They paid no attention to the krumiers Anyway, the krumiers had vanished. Each column marched straight down the dusty road to Tunis. In yep. Paris, Saint-Hilaire explained airily, we are not at war with the Bay and we do not wish to be at war with the Bay. It is as allies that we plan to enter and operate on Tunisian to- territory and put down the disorders. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind that there were no <laughs> disorders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you get that image, right? With the bay saying, I, I don't need any help. Oh, you need help.
0: You <laughs> no, really. Help. Please. We're good here. Okay. Oh, you look like you need help.
1: You, you have disturbances. I I can handle the disturbances. No, no, I don't think you can. So, uh, yeah, the Bay is soon compelled to come to terms with the French who are going to occupy the country and he signs uh, the first of a series of treaties. Uh, The documents basically say that the Bay will continue as head of state, but the French will be given effective control over uh, Tunisia's government uh, in the form of a protectorate. Italy protested but they didn't intervene. I don't know if they got the word from Britain. I don't know if they got the word from Germany. And, and there may have been a promise that, okay, you're next, right? Algeria, Tunisia, and if you continue further east, you get to Tripolitania, now known as Libya, so there's a sort of, you know, unofficially stated promise. Okay, you you can have Libya, eventually. Mm-hmm. Maybe wait, a, wait a little bit so that it doesn't look too obvious. But yeah, uh, but Italy was also pretty ticked off at the French. This is about the highest point of uh, Franco-Italian hostility and competition in North Africa and the Mediterranean, and it's what's going to lead Italy to join the triple alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Tunisia's status is nominally different from that of Algeria. So here's your indirect rule. The Bay stays in office and Tunisia is still technically considered independent. The treaties that Tunisia has with other states uh, remain in force, but France France takes complete control of foreign affairs, finances, and maintains the right to station military troops in Tunisia.
0: Treaties written in French, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, The Bay didn't understand it.
1: So the Bay will be implementing administrative, judicial, and financial reforms dictated by France. So it's more like Egypt.
0: The Bay asks, apparently, for 24 hours to consider, and uh, General Briar says, Certainly not. I expect an answer before 8 o'clock tonight and shall remain here till I get one. <laughs> so they all tell him to sign, and yeah. he signs. And then apparently he cries, according to, uh, according to Packingham. When he was alone, he broke down and wept like a man bereaved.
1: Yeah. So you could say the French learned something in Algeria? and they've learned that indirect rule is um, easier, safer, wiser, uh, and more effic- more effective. <clears throat> so they left the framework of local government intact and they just, you know, made sure that they could control the way this worked. So uh, beneath the, uh, the bay, there were provincial governors uh, known as uh, Kaids, am I saying that correctly? Yep, yep. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Yeah. So these are the most important public officials, you know, under the level of the Bay. There are about 60 of them, and they maintain order, collect taxes. Uh, they're in districts that are either defined by uh, tribal membership or by geographical limits. The central government appoints these kades usually choosing someone you know from a major family in the tribe or or uh, already well known in the district to make sure that they're respected and that their authority will be obeyed and then below the qaids are the uh, sheikhs, the leaders of tribes the village headmen the central government also appoints them but usually on the recommendation of the qaids so these 60 or so uh, governors, uh, let, let's just stick with caids They're pretty important people. And the French, after the invasion, allow most of the Kaids to keep their post. And that means that they are now, well, complicit. They're, they're happy to be still in power. And that means that they're going to work with the French. The, the French are going to watch these guys carefully, but they're going to allow them to continue to function. That doesn't mean the whole country is pacified of course the extreme south of tunisia was home to some tribes who were not at all keen to be invaded by france and uh, hostilities began almost immediately so the french had a, uh, a military intelligence service the service des Renseignements, to deal with that and they split the civil and military governments uh, to keep the you know, the military governor from taking over, which is what happened in Algeria, they also brought in some new ideas uh, specifically with education. So the the French director of public education was responsible for all schools in Tunisia, including the, the religious schools. And according to uh, Kenneth Perkins, many colonial officials believed that modern education, would lay the groundwork for harmonious Franco-Tunisia relations by providing a means of bridging the gap between cultures. So what does that mean? Well, they're getting, they're they're more pragmatic than they were in Algeria. The schools teaching modern subjects in French would produce Tunisian graduates with the skills necessary to work in the government bureaucracy to work for the French obviously so you're going to create this uh, core of people whose interests are linked to your own so the director of public education set up a unitary school system for French and Tunisian pupils designed to draw the two peoples together obviously the language of instruction was French and the curriculum was very close to that in metropolitan France
0: and thre- yeah, that's again very different from the English model, right? For
1: well, it's
0: pretty segregate in India, for example. English <coughs> kids are not going to school with Indian kids. At all. Mm,
1: no, in that sense, yeah, yeah. Also, these French-speaking uh, students will study Arabic as a second language. Mm-hmm. So you'll have another core of uh, trained, you know, interlocutors—people who can work between the two
0: yeah this is a kind of like France is always a more assimilate like they're still super racist and have the race theories but there are more assimilationist in a lot of ways than the anglo-americans are right who who always have that segregation segregationism yeah,
1: yeah and even though we say you know they're trying this the the fact is that there wasn't much ethnic mixing in the schools mm-hmm So it's a
0: promise and not really a fact. No,
1: most of the Tunisians. I mean, I I can imagine plenty of French who don't want to be in the same classroom with with Tunisians, but also the Tunisians want more religious education, right? Which they're not going to get in these French schools.
0: They want to still be Tunisian (laughs) or something or Arab. Yeah, they don't want to become French, which is what the France want them to be.
1: Yeah, so. Uh, from here, I think in the next episode, we'll go to West Africa and do a bit of a tour of French West Africa, similar to the one.